Good morning. Glad everyone can be here this morning. We know we have a lot of visitors being the Christmas or the Sunday before Christmas. And that's not a typo on the screen. We are talking about Revelation. And I am the youth minister, so it doesn't even get better. <clears throat> Chris is out of town this morning with family, and so it is a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Um, if you are a member here, you know that we have been walking through the New Testament five chapters a week and taking our weekly sermon from that portion of the text. And this week, we find ourselves in the middle of the depths of Revelation. It's maybe not the most difficult section, but it's definitely a dark section. Um, if you would, open your Bibles and find Revelation chapter 13. We're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. And as you're doing, I want to tell you about a special place. If you drive through Buffalo Gap, like you are headed towards the flea market, and you know just where to look, you will see about 100 yards or so from the road a grove of old oak trees of pretty good size with a couple of half-rotting boards still nailed to them. That was the stomping grounds of myself and my brother and several of our friends, Zach included, growing up. We spent a lot of time in those woods, and it wasn't always visible from the road. They've recently cleared things back so you can see it. We had a lot of different forts back in this particular area of Buffalo Gap. And while the treehouse fort was definitely a fun one, it's not the one that I remember the most. The one that I remember the most, you cannot see from the road. It was off to the side, um, I don't know, maybe 15 yards from this big tree. And it was, it was nestled in a grove of a bunch of little saplings that my brother and I had spent hours trimming away. And then we had the grand idea to get pickaxes and shovels and dig a dugout fort. <clears throat> now to us, it seemed really huge. But it, quite honestly, it was the size of two sleeping bags and it was probably about a foot and a half deep, just deep enough to kind of disappear, and we hatched this grand plan to spend the night in the woods. So we notified our mother, and who probably rolled our eyes and said, yeah, right, we'll see. And we gathered up our gear and our sleeping bags, and we laid them out in the hole, and we built a little uh, uh, protection of limbs and leaves on top of the hole. And as the sun set, we settled in for the night. I don't know who started the conversation first, but it didn't take long as it got dark around us to start hearing a lot of noises in the trees. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear anything. What did you hear? You know, well, no, it was probably nothing. Um, <clears throat> do, do you want to go inside? <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't want to go inside. I mean, only if you want to go inside. Well, I mean... If you do, I, I, I mean, it would be okay. And it didn't take long before we had talked ourselves into going inside. And, and I think by the time we actually made the run, we were sprinting through the darkness to get back to the comfort and safety of our house because we had terrified ourselves by trying to stay out in the woods in the dark. What is it about the dark that scares us? I think it's the unknown. You know, that same place during the daytime was my childhood dream. But at night it turned into quite a terror. You need to read the book of Revelation. I would liken a good reading of the book of Revelation 
to placing a lantern in the hand of a child camping in the dark. It doesn't answer every question that you have. In fact, at the edges of the flickering light, where it just barely reaches, there's still some things that really concern me, and I can't make it all out, but there is tremendous comfort in the light that's shed on our immediate surroundings. And I think this is why John was given this revelation and why, through the work of the Holy Spirit, it has been preserved for us today, to give us a clearer view of reality. And that's a pretty bold claim to write, to say for a writing that has dragons in it. But, but I mean it. You need to read the book of Revelation, and when you do, I would like for you to look at it like a painting instead of a math problem. Something meant to elicit emotion instead of a riddle to be solved. Something crafted to help you interact with intangible realities in a tangible way. See, Revelation is less like a math problem and more like a painting. This is a tough reality for me, and I struggled with it as I was preparing the sermon. Because when I read Revelation, it makes my brain want to explode. The symbolism, the numbers, what do they mean? How do they mesh with the present? What's literal? What's figurative? What has already happened? What is yet to happen? It's difficult for me to read Revelation without seeing this big riddle to be solved. But I don't think that's why it was written. It's closer to a painting. Not in the sense that you can make it mean whatever you want, but instead it's a painting that was prepared for a specific purpose and meant to communicate a specific truth. So this morning, as we step into the depths of Revelation, you are not going to see me interpret anything. I'm not going to talk about what the numbers stand for and what scholars think the symbolism refers to. What I am going to do is talk about the painting and the things that we can clearly see. There is much more going on. There might even be value in digging deeper, but today we're going to talk about some of the things Revelation reveals about spiritual realities around you, and we're going to use those realities to recenter our thinking. As we do, I would like to draw your attention to two verses. Two verses that are outside of today's text, one from the very beginning of Revelation and one from the very end. Revelation 1.3 reads this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then at the end of Revelation, in 22.7, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. As we read, we must keep in mind that there is something to be kept within these pages. Something to be done, something to be followed, some action that must result from reading this book. So the big question this morning is, what is it? What is our battle cry? What is Revelation about? And here's what I believe it is. Faithful endurance. The battle cry of the saints is faithful endurance. Our key text this morning is Revelation 13.10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Later on in 1412, it repeats this same call. And these calls find themselves in the middle of a pretty discouraging situation, a situation that feels hopeless, a situation that, quite frankly, makes me really, really uncomfortable. You see, as we approach chapter 13 with chapter 12, we see Satan depicted as a dragon 
who has been cast down the earth, and he has declared war on believers. And as we approach this text and then work away from it, we see several things happening. First, this dragon Satan gives authority to a sea beast who defeats the saints and is worshipped by everyone not in the book of life. And then there is a land beast, later on referred to as the false prophet, who rises up, and he also has the authority of the sea beast, who had the authority of Satan, and he deceives everyone left, makes an image of the sea beast, and kills everyone who will not worship it. And then all of mankind is marked with the sign of the beast, 666, and those who are not marked cannot buy or sell, which is effectively a death sentence. And so as we work to process this difficult passage in Revelation 13, I I really do want to stay away from trying to tell you what or who everyone else thinks the beast is. Instead, I want to call your attention to some realities that I see. Satan is powerful. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And Satan thrives on your desire for self-preservation. My first point, Satan is powerful. Perhaps I should phrase it more accurately. Evil is a powerful force. Satan and his agents are powerful. Let's read the first eight verses of Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Verse 4 says, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Verse 7 says, He made war on the saints and he conquered them. Verse 8, He had authority over all mankind. Satan and his agents are powerful. You know, this is a consistent truth throughout all of Scripture, from the time he enters the scene in the garden until today. And while I would like to believe that all of those who believe in God are shielded from this, reality and observation would tell us that they are not. Life isn't fair. Satan is working. Satan is causing hurt. Satan is causing God's people to get hurt. And in the process of doing it, he's amassing quite a following. So just when I am ready for an explanation of what we see here, I get the talk that it seems like I'm now giving more and more often, which is, this is just how it is. In other words, I'm sorry, no explanation. This is how it is, faithfully endure. Back to our text in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. 
Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. While I find it difficult to stomach, while I find this call to faithful endurance disconcerting, up next I see is not hope but more defeat. And it gives us insight into another powerful tool of Satan and his agents, and that is the tool of deception. In verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, and it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast who mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Not only is he powerful, he's incredibly deceptive. I mean, here we see him depicted as making, performing great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. If you think back to Old Testament times, last time fire came down from heaven, God was working. These churches, these seven churches who this revelation were written to, was provided for, had been won over to Christianity based on the testifying truth of signs and wonders that they had seen. But here in Revelation, the beast takes a power assumed to be from God and he uses it to destroy people and kill believers. He convinces the people to build an idol and then he gives the idol the ability to speak. To be quite honest, I'm blown away that Satan was permitted to use such deception. Deception is a powerful tool. Believe me, I know. How else do you think I got Brianna to marry me? <clears throat> there was an article in the uh, Associated Press, and it was entitled, Marathoner Loses by a Mustache. It appeared that Abe's Tahami of Algeria was an easy winner of the Brussels Marathon until someone wondered where had his mustache gone. Checking eyewitness accounts, it quickly became evident that the mustache belonged to Tahami's coach, Bensalem Hamiani. Hamiani had run the first seven and a half miles of the race, then he had dropped out of the pack, disappeared in the woods, passed race number 62 on to his friend. The race organizer said they looked about the same, only one had a mustache. It's expected the two will never again be allowed to run in Belgium. Some people are pretty skilled deceivers. And some are really bad at it. Satan's really, really good. It is his craft. It is his character. It is his being. And he is the source from which all deception flows. Jesus described Satan this way. He said, He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8 44. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And finally, Satan thrives on your desire for self-preservation. If we go back to our text in verse 16, the beast, also it, the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked 
on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Not only does the text tell us that Satan or that the beast defeats the saints, not only does it tell us that he deceived everyone into building him an idol and killing those who did not worship it, it tells us that he crafted a situation where no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark of the beast. In other words, he crafted a society in which people were required to take his mark in order to engage in commerce. Buying and selling seem necessary in the art of staying alive. If we stepped aside from that a little bit, have you ever been pressured into buy, doing something by society that you didn't necessarily want, but you felt like you had to do? I remember, for instance, when text messaging first became a thing. Oh, how I resisted. I mean, that was an awful, awful thing that people were making me do, send these text messages. And now that I've kind of adapted this new way of interacting, uh, I don't know that I could function without it. It's been tried, and it was actually pretty difficult. Um, if you have a junior high student in your home, you're probably getting an earful of this right now if you've chosen not to give them a phone, okay? Um, you're, you're getting an earful because everyone around them has a phone, and they can't function, and they can't have friends, and how are you going to know when they get back to the school after an event, okay? And, and how are they going to have any friends, Okay? In fact, they probably can't even do their schoolwork without a phone. That's what I'm going to guess. I would confirm that with their teachers because I doubt it's true. But we need to cut them a little slack because we would feel the exact same way if we were in their shoes without our phones. Okay? That's become a pretty important part of interacting in our society. Or maybe you have decided not to be on Facebook. I've tried that several times too. And it's pretty tough, okay? It's pretty tough to stay connected. It's pretty tough to interact. It's kind of one of those things that most of us subscribe to being a necessary evil to function in this world. Now, let me pause and say this. In no shape, form, or fashion am I saying that cell phones and Facebook are the beast or the marks of the beast from Revelation 13. I'm not saying that at all. Here's what I am saying. Our desire for self-preservation is big. Our desire for being integrated into society is big. And when we succumb to looking like those around us in order to be part of their system, we are forsaking the call of endurance and faithfulness of the saints. In fact, the same call, when it's repeated again in Revelation 14, 12, is right after an angel warns about the result of taking this mark. Chapter 13 is quite a disturbing section of text when isolated, but we see the realities displayed around us. We see them through the entire council of Scripture, and they're confirmed in this prophecy. Satan's powerful, he's a deceiver, and he thrives on your desire for self-preservation. So Merry Christmas. Thankfully, that's not all that we see here. Yeah? That's not all that Scripture tells us. It's not all that we can see and observe. I want to remind you of three truths that stand in contrast to this and envelop all that we see here. God is in control. God is truth. And God has won and will preserve the faithful. Satan may be powerful, but God is in control. 
All of this text in Revelation 13 is under the umbrella of what happened in Revelation 11 and Revelation 12. In Revelation 11, 15, the announcement is made by one of the angels that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. All of this section is under the umbrella of Satan's defeat. Okay? In fact, we see it sprinkled throughout our text in Revelation 13.7 and in Revelation 13.15. The text says that he was allowed to exercise authority. I have a lot of questions about that that I can't answer. I don't understand why God allows Satan to do some of the things he does. But I do know this. Satan is not in control. God is. God permitted Satan to destroy Job. God permitted some very sinful nations to destroy his people on multiple occasions. And God permitted Satan to work and deceive in Revelation 13. But as I look through the entire council of Scripture, while I want to push back against this, while I want to be upset with this, I see over and over a call to recognize God and His sovereignty and who He is. John 1.3 tells us nothing was made without Him. Lamentations 3, 37-38 tells us nothing good or bad comes to pass without a command from God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us that, that our thoughts and our ways are not like His. His ways are higher. In Job chapter 38, when Job is coming out of everything that he's endured and God finally talks to him, he doesn't give an explanation. You know what he says? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you answer me. Where were you when I made all of this? I don't get it most of the time. But I'll say this. While it may be hard to admit, often the times when I have questioned God the most and even been upset at Him for what is happening are times that I later look back and I get tremendous clarity. Not always. Job didn't get clarity on this side of eternity. And you may neither. But it's important to recognize that our lack of understanding of a situation, our narrow view of a situation, can often lend itself toward thinking God is not in control. And I believe this is one of the primary reasons Revelation was written. This is the root of the call of faithful endurance. Understand that you are not living in the big picture. You are a small piece of a greater reality. And it's going to take some trusting. And it's going to take some relying on what we are told. Revelation is one of the places that Scripture turns the light on for you. That asks you to look up from what you're dealing with and calls you to something bigger. The battle cry of faithful endurance. Satan may be a liar and a deceiver, but God is truth. And God has also revealed this truth to us once for all. Have you ever been enamored by a magician's trick, but then once the trick is revealed, really annoyed that you didn't see the sleight of hand before? How easy it is to fall for a trick when we're uninformed, but how obvious it is once it's revealed. Praise God for revealing the truth to us. This very passage is a revelation of the truth, just as is the entirety of Scripture. 
Revelation, the Apostles' writings, the Gospels, the Old Testament, all of it, all of it served the purpose of revealing the truth to you, the original audience, and it does so for you today. The tools you need to discern the difference in a sign from Satan and a sign from God, the tools you need to sift through the deception and latch onto the truth are all right here in this book. Even in this passage, not everyone was deceived. In fact, if we read on into chapter 15, verse 2, we see those people, the group of those who conquered the beast, singing the song of Moses. And finally, while Satan thrives on your desire for self-preservation, God has already won, and he will preserve the faithful. You will never be more free than when you let go of the desire to hold fast to your life and entrust yourself to God. In chapter 12, verse 11, we read, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The saints who loved not their lives even unto death in this passage were killed, but their faithful endurance sent them to God's side. And we see that in chapter 15. Those who got angry at God and decided to preserve themselves followed the beast into battle against him and found eternal destruction and suffering. This is clearly depicted in chapter 19. God has won and will preserve the faithful those who refuse to preserve themselves. So my final question, who do you follow? This book may seem weird and backwards and crazy and hard to understand, and while I have so, so many questions, the genuine realities it reveals give me enough to know who I need to follow. Look out at the world around and then examine your own life. Whose mark do you really bear? Whose claims do you really believe? Whose team are you really on? God is one, and something better is coming. And, and Revelation is a call for the faithful endurance of the saint amidst the fact that the labor pains of birthing a new creation are not yet over. Amidst the fact that evil still does have tremendous power, that Satan is still deceiving, that people are still trying, trying with all futility to preserve themselves. Amidst all of that, our battle cry often doesn't feel like a battle cry at all. But our battle cry is faithful endurance. In other words, hang in there and keep your focus. Let me tell you how the story ends. Satan, the sea beast, the false prophet, and all of those who worship him are made to drink the wrath of God and thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and eternal torment. And the martyrs and the saints and those who faithfully endured find themselves in a city where truth reigns. This is quite ironic because there's no more tears there. Where God is light, and where there's no more tears, and no more. No more tears, and no more death, and no more mourning, and crying, and pain. This is so temporary. So here we are at Christmas talking about Satan and his power and some pretty dark things. But I hope you've seen past it to a message of hope. You know, God is always acting in ways that are counterintuitive. He chose a defenseless, powerless people to bring the Messiah into the world. He chose a humble, engaged couple of little means to parent him. He made his first announcement to a bunch of lowly shepherds. He made his arrival in a stable where animals were kept. 
During the season of Christmas, may we not be distracted by the things that look big and flashy and important. And instead, may we draw near to our humble Savior, looking past what lies immediately before us and ahead to what lies so close, heaven, God, and salvation. We offer an invitation to any of you who have heard the word of God this morning, the invitation to repent, to put on Christ in baptism, and to enter into his salvation. You only have two choices. We all only have two choices. Who are you going to follow? If it's time to make a change, come forward as we stand and sing.